So as I mentioned, our series this month is called uh, God Is, and obviously there are lots of things the Bible tells us um, about who God is and what He's like. Um, So to narrow it down a bit, um, we're going to be looking at just a small subsection of those. It has a very fancy name. I hope you're ready for it. We're looking at something called the incommunicable attributes of God. Now, I had to practice that quite a lot in the car on the way here. It sounds quite complicated, but actually it's not, and Marty gave us a bit of a hint to it this morning in his announcement. Because God made us in His image, there are some ways that we are like God. So, for example, God is holy, wise, and loving, and we are called to to be holy, wise, and loving. Now, we'll never be exactly like God. We'll never be as loving or wise as He is but we're called to be those things, and those are called the communicable attributes of God. But we're looking at the incommunicable attributes of God, so in simple language, we're looking at the ways in which there is no one else like God, the things that God is that we are not. One obvious example would be that God is eternal. He always was and He always is. That's not the case for us. We had a point when we came into being, and we will die once too. So, That's one way in which he isn't like us. Incommunicable is the fancy language, but for my own sake, I'm gonna keep things simple and say we're looking at ways that God is not like us. And the first attribute or characteristic of God, it's another big word, um, that we're gonna look at is that God is incomprehensible. We can't fully understand God. God is a God who is full of mystery. There's so much about God that we simply don't know and we will never know. And to help us look at this tonight, we're going to turn to God's Word. It's on the sheet on your um, seat. It'll also be on the screen if you'd rather look up. And we're going to read from Isaiah chapter 40 and beginning at verse 12. Um, And I realize we're jumping into this really way out of context. We're we're not, we haven't been working through Isaiah or anything. But essentially what has happened in the previous section of Isaiah, and the first section of Isaiah is chapter 1 to chapter 39, is that there's been this very long prophecy in which Isaiah has called God's people on God's behalf to moral reform. There's been a lot of corruption in the land, um, and he's been calling them to turn around and turn back to God, and he's been warning of the consequences if they do not do so. And then in chapter 39, King Hezekiah is told by Isaiah that the Babylonians are coming. So actually what we're reading is, was probably written round about the same time as Habakkuk that we've been reading in the mornings. So that's the context. The Babylonians are gonna be on their way soon. And I suppose the people who were listening to Isaiah must have thought, well, what sort of God's gonna do this? Just what we've been thinking about in Habakkuk. And this is what God says in response. He reminds the people just who he is. So we're gonna jump in at verse 12 of Isaiah chapter 40. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. 
Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me or who is my equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. Let's pray together. Our Father, as we've just been singing, nothing can compare with you. But Lord, we simply want to come and to adore you. And so we ask now that as we come to think about your incomprehensibility, that you would do just that, that you would increase our praise for you and our love for you. Lord, come and speak to each one of us in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier this week, um, Jonathan Gibson, who is a 24-year-old student from Glasgow, became the youngest champion ever of the BBC quiz show Mastermind. And if you're not familiar with Mastermind, I imagine most people are, but basically what happens is the, the contestant gets to answer two sets of questions. And the second one, the second round of questions is general knowledge, so you can't really prepare much for those, I suppose. But in the first round, the contestant actually gets to choose the subject. And that makes it sound really easy when you say it like that, but obviously it's not. The questions are very specific and very hard. So for example, if your specialist subject was say, Ravenhill Presbyterian Church, a question might be something like, on what Bible passage did Willie McCune preach in his first sermon in Ravenhill on the 12th of May, 1991? I don't know the answer to that question, by the way, but I did go and check the date, the date is right. If anybody knows, answer's on a postcard. But really hard questions that people who think they know a lot about a subject, they have no clue about. But one of the amazing things about this guy, Jonathan Gibson, is that when he won this year's Mastermind in the final, he got 11 out of 11 questions right on his specialist subject in the final, which was the comedy songwriters Flanders and Swan. 
He knew his specialist subject inside out. None of the questions caught him out. And when he was asked about it, he said, Flanders and Swan was a favorite of my dad's. I've known the lyrics of every single song since I was about seven or eight. I don't know about you, I have no idea what I would choose as a specialist subject. I don't think I know that much about any subject, although if Mr. Gibson's anything to go by, perhaps I should choose the music of Simon and Garfunkel since I was subjected to it so much and so constantly as a child. Thanks, Dad. There are many things on this earth that we can know lots about. We can fill our heads with information about it if we want to. I'm sure around this church tonight, if I asked you, what would your specialty be on Mastermind? You'd all have different answers. It might be an academic subject. It might be a particular football club or a competition, a musical composer, an author, a musical artist, some other person. But what the Bible makes very clear to us is that none of us could ever make that topic God. All those other things that I mentioned, they have a start point, they have an end point. If it's a person, there's a time when they were born and possibly a day and time when they've died, unless they're still alive, of course. But between the start and the end point, there's a finite amount of things that have happened. It's possible for a human mind to kind of get to grips with most of the events in a person's life. It's possible to know all about a book or a song that a person created, the story behind it, the contents of it, the success or the failure of it. When something or someone has a start point and an end point, then you can master the subject. But that's not God. He is incomprehensible. We, we can't know Him fully. There will always be an element of mystery about Him. I'm not going to reinvent the wheel to say more about that, but the words we read in Isaiah 40 are a strong and a timely reminder of how small we are and just how far beyond our understanding God is. He's measured the seas in the hollow of His hand. The nations are like a drop in a bucket, like dust on the scales. We can't fathom the Spirit of God. We can't instruct Him. We can't teach Him anything that He doesn't already know. We're like grasshoppers in the earth below. He calls all of the stars by name. It says one by one, and in case you didn't know, there are about 100,000 million stars in the Milky Way alone, and the Milky Way is less than a percent, in fact, a very small fraction of a percent of the whole universe. His understanding no one can fathom, Isaiah says. I, I only printed that Bible passage so that if you go home and you, you want to sort of think over again about God's incomprehensibility, just read those words. It puts us in our place, doesn't it? A very similar chapter in the Bible is Job chapter 38. When Job loses everything, he questions God. He asks why. He doesn't blame God or curse Him, but he does complain that God doesn't answer him. And what does God say when He does eventually respond? He says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Job, do you know who I am? Let me answer the question, Job. No, you don't know who I am. You don't know how I operate. You don't know my mind. God is incomprehensible. The way the reformers understood this was just by saying that we are created and we're distinguished from God who is the creator. As creatures, we're finite and God is infinite and the finite cannot grasp or understand the infinite. 
We're just in two different categories. It's as simple as that. We can't understand his nature. That's who he is. Our nature, we are flesh. God, we can't say. We can't know his knowledge. As Isaiah says, his knowledge, no one can fathom. And we can't know or understand his works. We've seen that in Habakkuk in the mornings, haven't we, over the last number of weeks. God, how can you do this? How can you send the Babylonians, those evil people, to attack us, your chosen and loved people? And there's no easy answer because we can't know the mind of God or his actions because we're finite and he is infinite. We can't tie him down nice and neatly or put him in a box. We can't think that when we pray, he's bound to do what we ask. We can't think that he owes us an explanation when things aren't going well in our lives, when our prayers aren't answered the way we would like. We are finite, he is infinite. One scholar called Jen Wilkin has put it like this, even the most intellectually gifted theologian will barely scratch the surface of understanding who God is. He is fully known only to himself. Put another way, the only expert on God is God. If that's what's said of a skilled theologian, we're in trouble tonight. God is completely incomprehensible. We can't know him fully. But in truth, that's actually only half of the definition. It's only half, because whilst we can't know God fully, we can know him. We know that, don't we? It's not that we can't comprehend him at all. We can't know him fully, but he's not unknowable. R.C. Sproul put it like this, there's a mysterious dimension of God that we do not know. However, we aren't left in darkness. God has also revealed himself, and this is basic to the Christian faith. There are things that we can't know, but God has revealed himself to us. It's practically what Moses says in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. It's good news God has revealed himself to us. He's given us things, revelations about himself. We couldn't have God as our specialist subject on Mastermind, but we could have all the things God has revealed about himself because he has revealed himself to us. And he's done this in, in three ways. Firstly, is in nature. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. And in fact, in Romans 1, Paul says that God has revealed so much in nature that we're really without excuse on the day of judgment if we aren't found to have known him. Secondly, God reveals himself in scripture in the Bible. Isaiah 40 is but one example of that, but God reveals truths about his nature and his knowledge and his works through all the pages of scripture. And then thirdly and most fully, he reveals himself in Jesus Christ. And the author of Hebrews right at the start of that letter says this, in the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God has given us Jesus and he is the exact representation of his being. So he's revealed in nature, in the Bible, and most fully in the Bible in Jesus Christ. 
And so even though we can't know God fully, these things that He has revealed about Himself, they're not speculation. We're not standing here saying, oh, God's completely incomprehensible. We can't know anything about Him, but you know, we, we might be able to make up a wee bit. No, they're not nonsense. They're not just the best we can muster together. They're absolutely true, and they're enough. They're enough to allow us to know God. They're enough to let us have a relationship with Him, for us to know the reality of sin and death defeated. And again, to go back to our friend Habakkuk, to, to allow us to live by faith and in the sure and certain hope of a glorious future, even if it's not good right now. God made us in His image so that He could reveal Himself to us, not in His language, but in ours, in a way we can understand, in a way that is both true and meaningful. This, this is the heavy bit, but God is incomprehensible, and it's not surprising that it's hard to get our minds around that. But I think that all we've thought about so far is summed up perfectly in, in that quote from Stephen Wellham, which is so good that I put it in a box on your page, so it must have been good. To say that God is incomprehensible is to gladly acknowledge that the glorious triune God of Scripture is in a category all by Himself, and that as such, He is unfathomable in His nature, knowledge, and works. However, due to His gracious self-disclosure or His revealing we can know the incomprehensible God truly, but never fully or exhaustively. There's a lot in there, but it's worth pondering that quote if you get a chance. Now, there's one word in that definition that, that stood out to me. It seemed like it was a little bit out of place, and I've highlighted it, and it's the word gladly, to gladly acknowledge that God is a category all of Himself and that He is unfathomable, because why should we be glad about that? How is it a good thing that we can't know Him as well as we might want to? And that's what I want us to spend the rest of our time this evening thinking about. We've defined what incomprehensibility is, but why is it a good thing? Why should it cause us to praise God more? Because I'm sure there are times in our lives when it certainly doesn't seem like it's a good thing, when we wish we knew what He was doing in our lives or in our relationships or in certain situations that we face. I mention our Sunday mornings in Habakkuk again. I mean, did Habakkuk think it was a good thing what God was about to do? That God was about to send in those wicked Babylonians to ravage God's people? Maybe if Habakkuk could have seen the long-term plan, the purpose, maybe he could have seen something good in it, but that's what, not what he gets from God when he asks. So why do we gladly, why does Stephen Wellham say that we gladly acknowledge the mystery of God? Well, the first thing is it gives us a right perspective of God. It keeps us humble. It gives us a right perspective of God. If we think that we know everything there is to know about God, then our perspective of Him gets all warped and skewed. I've included a few verses from Mark 6 on your handout, and it's talking about Jesus who's teaching in His hometown. This is what Mark says. When the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard Him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? What are all these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. 
the people in Jesus' own hometown, they thought they knew him. They thought they knew everything there was to know about him. He was just an ordinary man, a carpenter's son. And so when he started teaching them, and when it didn't fit in with what they really wanted to hear and with what they thought about him, they rejected it. They got offended by it. They didn't listen to it. Another example, I love the story in Genesis about the Tower of Babel. I mean, in a way, it's a terrible story about the state of mankind, but what happens And these men, they build a tower, they think they'll build it high enough, then they'll get to God, and when they think they're nearly there, when they think they're nearly done, I love how Genesis puts it, God steps down, he stoops down to see what they're up to. They think they know God, they think they can get to him, but God is so high above them that he actually has to stoop down to see what they're doing. Of course, he knows what they're doing, but it's just ironic that that's the way it's written because God is so much beyond them. And these events, whether it's that tar in Genesis or those people rejecting Jesus in his hometown, we might wonder what they have to do with us tonight, but the truth is we are prone to do the same things. If we think we can know God fully, it, it doesn't lead to good things for us. If we think of God as just the man upstairs, or as our wee mate, our wee friend, you know, he, he walks with me every step of the way, he's my wee friend, and he, he is our friend. But if that's all we think about him, then we think he's always just going to do good things for us. He's the one who really ought to answer our prayers, give us what we want. He's the one who is love, isn't he? So he would never challenge that sin in my life, would he? But those characteristics do not describe the God of the Bible. He's not so small that those things could be remotely true about him. He's beyond us. He's incomprehensible. He will sometimes do things that we don't understand. He will lead us through times in our lives when we fail to see any purpose whatsoever. And from our perspective, it might even go against God, go against who we think he is. But realizing that God is incomprehensible really actually helps us a lot because it reminds us of who he is and who we are in comparison. In Psalm 8, it says, what is mankind that you are merciful, that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? To, to know and acknowledge that we are nothing but dust is good for us because it allows us to trust him. It allows us to let him get on with being God and it allows us to better see our place in this world and our small role and God's purposes for it. It leads us to humility. It lets us see who God is more clearly. And that brings us to the second thing because we gladly acknowledge the mystery of God because it leads to proper reverence and worship. When we understand that we do not understand all of God, when we realize that there is always more to know, more to learn, and there will be more to learn for all eternity, then we will revere and praise Him more. There's always more to learn. There's always more to sustain that relationship. It's not like we'll get bored, completed it, done it, that's that done. The more we know Him, the more we'll love Him, the more it will drive us on in our relationship with Him. An English Puritan called John Howe once said this, we can apply our minds to contemplate the several perfections whereby the blessed God discovers to us His being and can in our thoughts attribute them all to him, though we, still, though we have still but low and defective conceptions of each one. That bit at the end, we still have 
defective conceptions of who God is. That, that's the mystery part. We're never going to get it all right. But there is so much that we do know and so much that is revealed, so much to learn that will drive us to greater love of Him. There's so much that's a mystery. There's so much still to learn that we don't understand. But as we ponder the things we do know and as we ponder the mystery, we will worship Him more and more. Now we see, as the Apostle Paul says it, we see it dimly. We see God dimly as in a mirror, but one day we will see face to face. On that day, we will truly worship Him. We read from Habakkuk this morning that the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And that doesn't mean that we'll know all there is to know about God because He will still always be the Creator and we always won't be. But we will have more appreciation of His mystery and it will lead us to deeper praise. Thirdly then, acknowledging the mystery of God gladly just sets us free. It's really freeing to understand just how small we are and how great God is, is freeing. When we know that His knowledge is so much greater than ours and He understands things that we could never understand, it's just amazing. But we don't like to live that way. We don't like to do that. We like to be in control of our lives, of our families, of our finances, of our friends, of our health, of our walk with the Lord, of, of everything. And we try and grip those things. But, but as we try to do that, we realize that that just brings us stress and pain. Maybe some of us lie awake at night worrying about some of those things. And we don't understand those things. And the truth is we can't control them. We worry because we don't know. But as we realize who God is, bigger than us, infinitely bigger than us, full of the knowledge that we don't have, and we, on the other hand, are that little speck of dust on His scales, realizing that and embracing the mystery of God actually lets us be free of those stresses. It frees us to trust Him because He's got it and we don't have to. When we see things that way, we realize that even though God is incomprehensible, we're not incomprehensible. In fact, it's the opposite. He is, in a sense, unknowable, but we are fully known to Him. Great words from Psalm 139. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. And when we get this, when we realize that he hems us in behind and before, that he knows everything, he knows our strengths, he knows what's good about us, and he knows our worst sins too. And he's neither impressed or repulsed by any of those things, but instead he accepts us because of Jesus Christ. He formed us in our inmost being, and because we are fully known to him, we're fully free to love him, even though we only know part of him. And so we trade the myth that we are God 
for the truth that he is God and he knows us fully and so we learn to trust his expertise in all that we go through in life. It sounds great. Sometimes it's a lot harder to do in reality but if we can grasp that God is incomprehensible then we can experience that freedom. And then finally, the incomprehensibility of God is a good thing because it means that his plans will always prevail. God actually uses his incomprehensibility in his relationship with us to make sure that his plans prevail even when the timing and the content of those plans is completely unknown to us. And there's no better example of this than Jesus Christ himself. We read earlier the author of Hebrews say that he is the exact representation of God's being and he is. There's so much about Jesus that is completely incomprehensible. Jesus during his life on earth was surrounded by so much mystery and he wanted it that way. He kept it that way quite intentionally. How often we we read words like those found in Mark 8, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. This was said to his disciples, but so often he said it to people who he had healed, don't tell anybody what happened to you. And the demons who cried out to him, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. He commanded them to be quiet. And even the title that he he chose for himself, Son of Man, that was kind of ambiguous. He didn't say that he was the Son of God, but the Son of Man. He revealed it eventually. He revealed what he meant by that when it was time for him to die. He said to the religious leaders that they would see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. When he said at that time there was no doubt, he was referring to the Son of Man in Daniel in the Old Testament, which is an apocalyptic writing that we studied some months ago. He was clearly revealing that at that time, but up to then, he kept it a secret. Up to that point, he could have been referring to Daniel, but he could have also just been saying that he was a human being. That's what the Greek word simply means of man, just simply a human being. He revealed himself in his time, in his way. When it was time for his death, he revealed it not before. He didn't get himself stoned to death for blasphemy earlier on in his ministry. Paul says in, in Romans 5, you see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Just at the right time, Jesus used his incomprehensibility to complete God's plan of rescue for sinners in his time, in his way, revealing enough for his followers to to believe in him, to, to know enough to follow him, to be saved, and revealing just at the right time so that he would die the death he was supposed to. God used his incomprehensibility to make sure that his plan and his purposes would happen and nothing would go wrong. There's still so much that is a mystery about Jesus to us. How can he be both God and man? Remember God, remember Isaiah 40, the one who calls the stars one by one, the one for whom the nations of the earth are like a drop in a bucket. Remember him? How could he place himself in the womb of a teenage girl in a wee village in the back end of nowhere, the tiniest of tiniest of specks of dust on those scales wouldn't even be seen. How could he, the almighty God, be born as a baby, vulnerable, reliant on human beings for his survival? Surely that's the wrong way around. How could he get hungry, the one who made everything? How could he get sad? 
He was God. How could he feel pain? He's the one who's all-powerful, who takes instruction and counsel we read from nobody. And yet the Bible tells us that he learned, as a man, he learned obedience. Those are words from the book of Hebrews. He learned obedience to death. How could he be the one who has all life in himself, the one who gives life, the one who is immortal? How could he die? How could that happen? Charles Wesley, the hymn writer, got it right. He said, "'Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explore his strange design? Not me. And yet we gladly embrace the mystery because it is in that mystery that he showed his love most fully to us. It's in that mystery that he took our sin upon himself. And it is in that mystery that through his death and resurrection, he has lifted us in our frail, small, broken humanity, the dust of the earth. He's lifted us up to the height of his throne where one day we will see him face to face and praise him forever. We're going to pray together and I'm going to begin the prayer with some words just from Romans 11, just as we respond to um, what we've heard. Let's pray together. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Lord, forgive us for the times when we think we know everything about ourselves and about you. Forgive us for the times when we have tried to take your place in our lives, when we haven't trusted you. And forgive us, we pray, for the times when we have thought of you as smaller and less powerful and less sovereign than you are. Lord, we could never fully know of your strength and your knowledge or why you might act or not act in different situations. But as we reflect on the fact that we know and comprehend so little and that you know and comprehend everything, Help us to know the freedom of trusting you with our lives, with our decisions, with our ambitions, with our failures, and with our problems. Lord, help us to gladly admit and acknowledge who you are as incomprehensible so that we can know you truly and trust in you for all things. In Jesus' name, amen.